Alright all you movie junkies, it is time for the SLS Cast, with your hosts Matt and Tim. And welcome, one and all, to episode 90 of the SLS Cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, the hummingbird episode of the SLS Cast. Because, in nature, a hummingbird flaps its wings up to 90 times a second. Or over 5,000 times a minute. And while we're on freakishly weird animal knowledge, a hedgehog's skin is so tough that when they get run over, its entrails come out of its mouth and its ass. So have fun with that, folks. I am Matt. And I am disgusted. Hi there, disgusted. Glad to have you on the show. Ugh, that, that was a little gruesome for the opening <laughs> of episode 90. Indeed. Man, where do you come up with this stuff? Like, do you Google search like ninety or like like the number, or do you have a a book of I, classified I, it's knowledge? The book of classified knowledge, I, and I am allowed to declassify things one episode at a time. Although on on a special tenth episode, like a ninety, I'm allowed to do a bonus factoid thereupon. So yeah, we are of course again the SLS cast. <laughs> I'm going to take a page out of our friends' uh, midnight movie nights and make sure we talk about a little bit about ourselves here at the beginning now. We've got ourselves a, a website, right? It's slscast.com. You can follow us on Twitter, at the SLScast. You can follow me, Matt, personally, at nittwit12345. And, of course, subscribe to us on iTunes and favorite us on Stitcher Radio. Search for us on Facebook. You can probably find Tim there, too, on Twitter, if you look carefully. He won't, he won't tell you his Twitter, but I'll bet you you could find it if you wanted to and annoy him. Any moron can find my Twitter, <laughs> surely. You just have to put two and two together. Two and two together. Yeah. Anyways, so, how you been doing, sir? Uh, I've been doing fine. I haven't been making the rounds like you have, though. Making the rounds with our fellow podcasters. Oh, yes, for the marathon episode session there that we did at Midnight Movie Nights. Yes, I got to... Uh, Hang out with our podcasting friends at Miranda Janelle and at That Fracking Cat for at Movie Nights Pod. That's Nights with a K. Those are all their Twitter handles. You can check them out at MidnightMovieNights.com. Shoutouts all the way around. Takes three minutes to get that out of the way, but hey, it's worth it. All the hashtags at... I'm not going to hashtag it. I can remember. <laughs> Ads are just fine. <laughs> so, yeah, they, they invited us on. I know you were having some technical issues, but uh, I managed to uh, show up, for better or for worse, and uh, we, we did have a good time. Were you for better or were you for worse? Well, for me, personally, it was for better. I don't know if the rest of the world would think it's for better or for not. That's, that's <laughs> more, or less, more or less where I'm coming from on that. But, uh, yeah, started school today. Um, I got screwed over by, uh, my, by, by University Park, by Lone Star College University Park. Ooh, calling oh, them absolutely. out. Absolutely. I'm tired of their fucking bullshit. Yes. Yeah, so really? Any... Hashtag, hashtag yeah. it, people. Hashtag, hashtag it. hate Lone Star. Anyway, uh, <laughs> that'd be so badass if somewhere <laughs> that came up somewhere down the line. Uh, now they, they, okay, so Lone Star is 
they have like seven or eight different campuses, and they are all tied together by name only. So by name and trans and credit transferability, so that you can take different classes at different campuses simultaneously. And of course, if you move or go, you know, you can all your credits transfer within that system. Aside from that, there are completely different schools, completely different faculties, completely different. Um, codes of conduct and stuff uh, all the different things and, and syllabi and curriculum for the classes are different and most importantly the books are different so when i back in january got into spanish i bought these books that cost like 300 and something dollars but it was because you were supposed to use them for spanish one and spanish two and then so i did spanish one and then i go and sign up for summer school to do Spanish too. And they, uh, call me the Dean, the, the, or I guess the department chair calls me on my way to class and is like, Oh, well, we didn't have enough low enrollment, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, okay, well, are you guys going to have it again? Whatever, blah, blah, blah. Oh, I don't know. Were you on the way to the class that they yes. were canceling? Yes. Really? The call. They, they, oh the man. Call. What kind of feeling did you feel? Like what, what? How were you feeling at that I mean, time? I at least was appreciated like, him calling me, you know. So yeah. it's whatever. I mean, hey, Matt. <laughs> uh, I they literally you know, said they had three people. So I mean, I understand that you know they needed more really? than three people. But anyways, so I get all the assurances that no, it's it's there for the fall and everything. So fine, I go ahead. I turn around and sign up for the fall, and I checked on Thursday to make sure everything was good and everything's all set up and yep, everything's fine. And then I check last night, and my Spanish class is gone. I'm like, what? Like, ah, por qué? Exactly. You know, oh, me, I, you know, as so, um, I, I am uh, perplexed, to say the least. And I get in touch with them this morning, and I'm like, look, I didn't get any communication on this. I need this class. Um, I've... You know, it's not even there anymore. I don't know what's going on. There's no other Spanish 2 classes at all. I even checked. And, you know, you have the option to search for open classes only. So I made sure to remove the open classes only thing. And there's, it's not even there. There's nothing at University Park. So uh, the advising gets back to me via email. And they're like, um, yeah, the, the class was dropped due to low enrollment. Make sure you have your contact information up to date. It is up to date because you already fucking called me once. Um, and they're like, oh, and the, and I explained to them in the email, I'm like, look, you guys had me buy this book that's good for two classes, and now, and you're the only campus that uses this book, so what the fuck? And they're like, yeah, and make sure you save your receipt so that you can return your books before classes start. So I'm supposed to go back in fucking time to January and return this fucking book before the first fucking Spanish class started in January? want to fucking kick them in the goddamn heads so yeah so now i had to go and re-register for another class at another campus online because that was all they had i they didn't have anything that i could go to so now i'm gonna have to buy another set of books and just wait listener if you think matt's upset now just wait till he takes it out all on me when we get to nymphomania i already told you i i can't i can't stand it I'm not going to be here for that. Oh, gosh. Well, how about we make some... Uh, here, here. Some, you know what? Uh, you know what? Let, let me help you now, Tim. Let me help you. Let me help you now. Let me just do that now, get that out of the way, and then it'll be nice and muted when it comes down to the 
thing. <sighs> that didn't feel better. Man. See, now we got it out of the way, and, and we're good to go. Hashtag ego <laughs> call out for Matt. Ego call out. Uh huh. Anyways, go to dangerousminds.com. I have uh, something interesting to show you real quick Ooh. for. Dangerous Minds. Uh, I think it's dangerousminds.com. I well then Google Dangerous Minds. Am I gonna get the Michelle Pfeiffer movie? Uh, is Coolio gonna pop up and no. tell me well, how? I think, uh, tell actually, me it's why, I, why he's got a front? That's why his li- life is out of luck, fool. Is that is that, <laughs> is that what's gonna happen? Yes, <laughs> he's gonna come out and bust a cap. Be like, yo, what's up? Yeah, so you go to uh, okay. dangerousminds.net. Yep, I am here. And you have to scroll down a bit, and you'll get to something that resembles an article that's entitled Career Rest in Peace T-Shirts. Worst music video ever. I'm probably going to have to come back to that. Man had moth buzzing inside his head for three days. The Return of Drugstore Cowboy. California Dreamin'. You know, that reminds me of something that Dennis Leary once said. When Dennis Leary once said, you know, I'm reminded of what Ma Cass said when she said, <laughs> anyway. Uh, too soon. Too soon. <laughs> Career RIP t-shirts. All right. Here, there you yes, go. I'm here. I have arrived at it. Why is Harrison Ford's on here? And why is it dated 1989? <laughs> because that was probably his one of his last really good movies, maybe. I don't know. That was the end of the... Uh, that was Indiana Jones, right? Was 1989 the last one? I think so. Or... Yeah, but I mean, he's done... He, he did really good stuff in the 90s, too. Yeah, I know. I know. That's weird. But I, I particularly like the Macaulay Culkin one. Yes, the Macaulay 1990 Culkin 1990 to 1994. 1994. <laughs> and for those of you who can't read minds, or dangerous minds, uh, there's just like a series of pictures with these uh, celebrities' faces on it like Macaulay Culkin and it's basically uh, rest in peace t-shirts because the it shows like the span of their career so Macaulay Culkin 90 to 94 I thought it was kind of uh, interesting yeah Tom Cruise is on here borderline poor taste but or Ice, Ice Cube stupid. is on here that's hilarious 1987 to 1994 and you got like Tom Selleck 1980 to 1990 <laughs> Which is funny because then he comes back and he gets this really super huge resurgence with um, with the Friends when he was on Friends. And now he's like got all this great stuff on TV. Yeah, he has like a series it's of a like Blue TV Bloods movies and stuff. Yeah, he does those, He does some movies based on a book. He had, isn't Quigley Down Under also from the 90s or is that still 80s? Was that still 80s? Oh man, that might be... That might be like 89. That might be around... We're gonna, we're gonna, I don't know. We're going to look it up here right quick. Let's see here. Quickly down. Under. Quickly. Where are you, Quickly? 1990! Oh! Oh, that's right there, too, because it says 1980 to 1990. Oh, that's terrible. Oh, well. So close. These are interesting. <laughs> these are interesting. I'm glad you showed me these. You're welcome. You're welcome. Ah, alright, so should we go ahead and get to the to the news then? Yes. Alright, well then officially it is the news. Alright, well, 
why don't you go ahead and get us started here, Tim? Okay. Well, if I'm going to get us started, I'm going to start off getting us started by asking you the start-off question, and that would be, Matt, when you go to your local Cinemaplex, do you, especially when you take your kids, do you purchase your kids the commemorative popcorn Coke little ensemble thingy where you get a fancy cool movie theater cup that that's like uh like uh like cloudy with a chance of meatballs but really it's like cloudy of chance of meatballs advertisements all over it hmm i had not really noticed those up until uh how to train your dragon 2 where you got this little collectible cup and it has a funky lid with one of the dragons on it and then you can stick the straw through the dragon into the cup and drink and the answer to that is no my kids don't get those things i guess i'm just not a very hip dad um <laughs> well i think you're a smart dad and, <laughs> have a, really, and a great already, dad so yeah. why why do we need to add to the crap pile so no they don't get it but um i'm also smart enough to herd them away from that stuff so they don't see it so they don't know that they're missing it Here's a pack of gubble, a bubble gum. Just just walk this way, kids. Walk this way. Nah, well, I actually, what I did do is last year um, in no, in November when Frozen came out, Cinemark was offering this tub. You buy the tub for like I don't know seven bucks or something, and then it was free. It was three dollar refills on this tub for all of 2014, and Ooh. they had the same thing nice. with these cups. You spent six dollars on the cup, which was in size. It's in between a medium and a large, so bigger than a medium, but not as quite as big as a large. And then it's $3 refills all of 2014. So I bought two of the cups and one of the tubs. And then whenever I take the kids, they get their own plastic tub of popcorn for 3 bucks. That's way better than the kids thing. And then they're not sticking their dirty, grubby little hands in my popcorn. And then they think it's badass because they've got their own personal bucket of popcorn. And Do they seriously turn to you and say, Dad, this is badass? Yes, the seven-year-old who is not allowed to say the word "ass," let alone "badass," um, you know, would would love to say that if she could, but she cannot. I can see there being like a stipulation, though, saying that I'm sorry, you cannot refill your drink for the three-dollar, you know, price because we can see your cup has been through the washer and it's starting to fade away. So you can't. Sorry, you can't. You have to buy a whole new cup now. Oh, they tried. They actually tried that uh, in January. Uh, they didn't mark the cups when they sold them to me. They were, apparently, they were supposed to put the dates on them or something uh, from when they were sold. And I came back, and this was like in January, I think for Wolf of Wall Street, actually. And the girl was like, did you get this here? And I was like, yeah, I got it on opening day for Frozen. And I was like, I got two of them in a, in a, a little tub of popcorn thing. She's like, oh, well, they were supposed to write the date on them. I'm like, well, I don't know what to tell you. I bought them, and I'm going to refill it. And so she wrote the date on it, um, and it's been through the washer. It's been in the dishwasher. The, the, the other one never even got a date written on it, and that one, the one that has the date on it, it's been, like, totally washed off by now, and th- nobody's ever said anything again. And it's hilarious because they tell you you're not allowed to, to get refills while you're there, but I can bring in a cup that nobody knows if I've cleaned it or not and totally just fill that every time I walk in. <laughs> but we we are way off topic. I'm sorry. Totally off digression. So what's what what is your news having to do with these you know quote unquote collectors commemorative cups? Yeah. cups. Commemorative cups. Well, according to the Hollywood Reporter here, they say that theaters are engaging more and more in the business of what they call 
Speed Pack Combos. This is from an article entitled, A Dragon With Your Coke? Why movie-themed toys are selling at the multiplex, written by Alex Ben Block. And this is what it says. Movie theaters make most of their profits on concessions, and this summer that revenue is getting supersized thanks to the growing business of speed pack combos, a plastic drink cup, figurine, and popcorn bag themed to the movie. Bill Howard, CEO of manufacturer Snapco, says that steamed... steamed says that themed packaging can increase sales by more than 15%. No small change as box office struggles. The Happy Meal-style sets cost theater owners about $1.50 in retail for as much as $7.95. The kid sees another kid with this toy and says, Hey, I want that too, says Howard. Snapco has licensing deals with nearly all of the studios, which collect a royalty on each sale. Rates are minimal because of the marketing benefit. Acceptance has been overwhelming, says Jim McGinnis of distributor RCM Media, which has set up deals with such theater chains as Cinemark and Cineplex. However, U.S. exhibitor giants Regal and AMC aren't participating yet. The top seller this year has been How to Train Your Dragon 2, which moved 1.2 million units worldwide, says Howard, including 75,000 in China, where it was tried for the first time this summer. Says Cinemaplex food service manager Kristen Sheridan, We didn't think we would see 35-year-old guys with collectible cups with little toys on them, but they love them. End all quotes. Now, would you, if you were a wee mat, a young lad, and you went to the movie theater, would you... Want if you saw a little kid walking by with a Transformers cup with a crappy little plastic thing on top, would you be wanting that also because that kid has it? Mm, I was never really one, even even when I was younger, to see a random kid have just something and then me want it. Um, if it was something that I already wanted, then maybe. But if it was a friend of mine who had it, and I still have this problem today, if my, like my friends get something really cool, I'm like, oh my gosh, I gotta go get one because that's badass. And it's not because I want to copy them or because I'm jealous. It's just because, holy crap, what a great idea! That's awesome. I'm, you know, I gotta emulate the cool shit. So, yeah. If it, but so, not not exactly. I guess is the short answer. Too late. I know. So not exactly. <laughs> cool. Well, yeah, that, that was it. All right. Well, then, come, uh, first up for me here, coming to us from businesswire.com. Benedict Cumberbatch, Kate Blanchett, and Christian Bale head the ensemble of Warner Brothers Pictures' 3D adventure, Jungle Book Origins. Young actor Rohan Chan to star as Mowgli in the cast, also including Peter Mullen, Tom Hollander, Naomi Harris, Eddie Marzen, and Andy Serkis. Yeah. Basically, what we have here is Warner Brothers trying to bitch-slap Disney and make their own Jungle Book movie. The movie itself, the story is, follows the upbringing of the human child Mowgli, raised by a wolf pack in the jungles of India. As he learns the often harsh rules of the jungle under the tutelage of a bear named Baloo and a panther named Bagheera, Mowgli becomes accepted by the animals of the jungle as one of their own, all but one, the fearsome tiger Shere Khan. 
But there may be greater dangers lurking in the jungle as Mowgli comes face to face with his human origins. More like less of a bitch slap, actually, than a, look, haha, see, we can do it too. I think this is just a terrible, terrible, terrible fucking idea. What I don't know. What about you, sir? Yeah, I mean, you see this thing a lot. I mean, that's why we do, like, the copycat throwdown segment. I think we have one coming. <laughs> it could very well be one of those situations where you have a team of people putting a movie together, and then the conflict arises, you know, heads start budding, and then people are forced to leave. Well, if it was somebody that came up with the concept or had these great ideas... If they're smart, they're going to see their ideas into fruition. And so, like with DreamWorks and Disney, when Lasseter went off and did his movies, and then what's-his-name went off? Katzenberg, Katzenberg. Jeffrey Katzenberg, went off and, uh, and did all the did ants and all that stuff, that caused a big uproar. Well, apparently, according to him, he had an idea, and John Lasseter had his idea. And they, you know, just stuff like that, so... I, I don't know. I mean, unfortunately, there's really no way of stopping. I remember when Milk uh, was was coming out, Steve Carell was supposed to be in a movie called The King of The King of Whatever Street, Whatever Street, one of the more famous streets in San Francisco. I think where his uh, where uh, where uh, much of the movie took place on uh, uh, Milk, I guess. But they canceled that production of that movie. Because, oh, it was Mayor of Castro Street. That's what it was going to be called. Well, they canceled Mayor of Castro Street because Milk became this big worldwide, you know, this big success of a movie. And Sean Penn got the Academy Award and all that good stuff. So you never know. I mean, very if one of these movies is going to crumble, it's going to be the Warner Brothers one. Because there's really no stopping Disney. Warner Brothers couldn't stop Disney uh, before with changing release dates. Yep. So I, I hear you. I mean, the, the juggernaut is in place. All right, sir, what do you got? All right, so, Matt, if you were making a movie... Yes. If you were yes. a music... If I'm making What's a that? movie... I'm just... I'm agreeing with you. I'm, I'm, oh, okay, I'm, okay. I'm making a movie. If you were making a movie, how, uh, and you were... you Like, um, you had this awesome soundtrack. Think Guardians of the Galaxy. You know, they have... Songs from the 60s, songs from the 70s, classic rock and roll songs. Right. But How I would not call think... it I would not call it an awesome mix. Mine would be Super Cool Mix Volume 1. Super Cool Mix? Yes, Super Cool Mix Volume 1. Go ahead. Vol- would it be Volume 1 or would yes, it be no, Volume 1? Yes, no, no, it'd be Volume 1. Actually, you know what? It 69. would be it would be uh, uh, Super Cool Mix the preface. Oh, that that works too. <laughs> it's to the point, I suppose. <laughs> Though it keeps people wondering what the hell you mean. Indeed. But uh <laughs> How much do you think a song normally costs? I, I honestly, I, I, I believe for the most part it would depend. I think if it's just some know nothing right. song that no one's ever heard of, I imagine you could probably pick up the rights for ten grand or less. I assume that if it's uh, something very popular, it gets played a lot, or it's in movies like Guardians of the Galaxy and stuff, and people always know it, I could easily see it reaching $100,000. How much would you be willing to spend on a song? Like, if there was one song that you wanted in your movie, how much would you spend on it? Do I have, Am I like Spielberg? I have an unlimited budget and total control and no one can say anything? No, I mean, let's just say you're making a, a teen high school type of movie. Maybe maybe even a teen high school football movie. Okay, ten grand. Ten grand. Ten grand. 
I would get some I would get some like local talent or you know some very un- low name uh, people and say look I'm gonna give you ten grand and when this movie does well you you'll explode and they'll say well yes. you know as a side as a side note uh, when you uh, mention just get some local people. A lot of people to get around the high uh, high price for uh, for using famous songs like the Beatles. That's why instead of hearing Beatles songs, mainly because rights haven't really been available for a long time. Same thing with Led Zeppelin, but you would hear a lot of people cover Beatles songs or Led Zeppelin songs, and that's how they're able to fly under the mat right, like, with that. But okay, so Varsity Blues came out in what ninety seven ninety eight. Right in that movie, they used ACDC's classic rock and roll anthem thunderstruck during a montage of a football game and according to the variety uh, variety.com has this thing called uh, a series called varieties artisans where they sit down and they talk to different people in the field like various directors and various actors and all that stuff well they sat down and they had a discussion with various music supervisors music supervisors are the people that Go and find music for uh, for the movies, or help the director choose and pick, you know, songs and what that stuff that fits within their budget. Well, to use ACDC's "Thunderstruck" in Varsity Blues in 1997-98, it cost them five hundred thousand dollars. <laughs> Not worth it. That's, that's a lot of money. <laughs> that is a ton of money, man. Wow. Yeah, and like uh, he was uh, the guy. He was saying that the music supervisor was saying that he was surprised that they had that in the budget. Like it was no big deal, really. It's like God. Well, luckily the movie turned out to be a moderate success, or you know, I'd be scraping the pocketbook, pay people back. From DigitalSpy.com, courtesy of Jack Clumpus, Simon Pegg confirms new movie with Edgar Wright. Quote: We have a title. End quote. Simon Pegg has confirmed that he's working on a new film with Edgar Wright. The actor insisted, though, that even though there are three flavors, Cornetto trilogy of Shaun of the Dead from 2004, Hot Fuzz from 2007, and The World's End from 2013 is over, they will definitely re-team on another project. Speaking to Edith Bowman on BBC's Six Music, Pegg said, quote, Edgar and I were having a conversation the other day about it, and it has a title and everything. We're kind of into a creative cycle now. We've got all different things going on, and we know we have to get those things done. The coming together thing is without question on the table, and will happen when we can do it. End quote. He does go on to say that when when he had referred to earlier about the trilogy being over and that they had done the you know the three movies in ten years, it was just that specific project was done, not that they wouldn't do anything ever again. So. Good news. They're creating. They're getting together. So maybe in the next few years, we'll have uh, something for you to go, to go and see. I definitely I love that team of guys. Oh, yeah. Surely people weren't thinking that they were not going to make more movies together. Simon Pegg, Edgar Wright, and Nick Frost, or just Simon Pegg and Edgar Wright? Oh, oh the three of them. Oh, okay. Right on. Right on. Yeah. yeah, all three of them. Very good. I mean, the, the whole group of people that they've used in uh, all three movies, you know, they're, just, they're great, man. They, they have a good chemistry and... You know, you can tell they work well together. Well, what do you got next, sir? Well, then I guess it's my last piece of news here. It's uh, it's something that's pretty interesting. I was wanting to talk about this a couple weeks ago. And, I don't know, Matt, you might get a kick out of this. For obvious reasons, maybe. Uh, but this is from Cineblend.com, and it's entitled, Hispanic Women Get Naked in Movies a Lot. 
written by Mark Rodden. It was published on its website at uh, August on August 11th of this year. And this is what it says. It doesn't take a media expert to realize the Hispanic community is underrepresented in major motion pictures by quite a large margin. It's been proven in more than a few studies, and anyone with eyes has probably realized the same thing through basic observation. If the latest of those studies is to be believed, however, Hispanic women are actually vastly overpresented in one particular area. Nude scenes. In a massive study conducted by USC, which I'm sure those uh, those people stu- you know conducting this st- survey really uh, or the study thoroughly enjoyed uh, their time on it. Dr. Stacy L. Smith not only broke down roles by race, she also further broke down the figures to ascertain what those roles actually involved. Was the character in a committed relationship? Was he or she sexualized? And was he or she partially or fully naked? When it comes to Hispanic women, the answer to the naked question is yes, an alarming 37.5% of the time. How does that compare to other races? And they have a chart here. Uh, It says, Table 3, Female Hypersexuality Indicators by Race and Ethnicity from 2013. And what they say here is that they have a uh, hypersexuality indicator. And underneath that it says, Percent in sexualized attire, percent with some exposed sin, sin, or exposed skin. Uh, To some, to the church, it's exposed sin, not just skin, it's sin. (laughs) And you have uh, percent, percent referenced attractive. And so, white... You have percent uh, 40, 32.2% in sexualized attire. You have 31.9% with some exposed skin. Exposed skin. 14.4% referenced attractive. And then you have Hispanic, which is 36.1%, 37.5%, and 11.1%. Black, 246 23.5%, 11.2%. Asian, 23.6%. 18.2%, 10.9% than it does other, which is 26.1, 21.7%, and 17.4%. And again, those three categories were percent in sexualized attire, percent with some exposed skin, and percent referenced attractive. Or attractive. And then the article goes on and says that for the purpose of the study, nudity or partial nudity was defined as showing skin between the upper chest and upper thigh. So it could be a woman in a bra, or it could be full frontal nudity. On the one hand, one could argue that this statistic has something to do with different attitudes in social norms related to nudity, sex, and revealing clothing throughout Latin America. Obviously, not everyone with roots in the region shares the same opinion, but some of the cultures are a bit more sexually forward and open. As a result, these actresses may not have any inhibitions about shredding their clothing, and if they don't, more power to them. That's their choice, and they shouldn't be shamed for it. Plus, the number isn't that much higher than white women who take off at least something 31% or so of the time. And the article goes on from there. And you can check out the study. They have a link to the study there. So, uh, Matt, any comments, concerns, questions on this? I mean, or was it like something that was kind of obvious to you? And Oh, I don't know. All I can say is God bless the Latina. And I think, honestly, one thing that they should have had in a category to go along with all this, all the, the percentages and whatnot, I would like to see the percentage of, like, tastefulness and it not being tasteful. Because I think that would definitely have 
have a greater impact of somebody looking at the study and being like, oh, wow. You know? I don't know. I think that's that starts getting to be a little too subjective at that point. I don't think you can have an objective study using a subjective definition for tasteful. Well, and then with that, you can also say, well, what's the definition of nudity? And people can argue about that. Well, I've got two quick pieces left. One is a, is a bit of a somber note, but we're going to get through this one first. It comes from arts.nationalpost.com, which is the National Post, from the movie section, courtesy of Rebecca Tucker. Star Wars Episode Seven learned from pre- prequels mistakes will avoid too much CGI. If you were to say that the worst thing about Star Wars Episodes One through 3 was Jar Jar Binks, you'd be only half right. What those films got wrong, among other things, were their special effects, which leaned heavily and bombastically on CGI, distracting from any practical effects, and threatening to wipe the memory of George Lucas's remarkable 1970s and 80s handiwork. Fortunately, Rian Johnson, who will direct the two films following Star Wars Episode Seven, feels the same, and so does Episode Seven's production team. Quote, they're doing so much practical building for this one. It's awesome, end quote, Johnson said during an interview with the podcast Girls with Hoodies. Quote, I think people are coming back around to practical effects. It feels like there is this sort of gravity pulling us back toward it. I think that more and more people are hitting kind of a critical mass in terms of the CG-driven action scene, lending itself to a very specific type of action scene where physics go out the window and it becomes so big, so quick. End quote. Just another for me in a long string of I am so fucking happy Disney got the reins of Star Wars away from George Lucas. And then again, last but not least, a bit of a somber note coming to us from uh, frackingfilms.net, courtesy of Jamie Hall. Actor Richard Attenborough has died at 90. Well, we clocked the T-Rex to 32 miles an hour. T-Rex? Mm-hmm. You said you've got a T-Rex? Uh-huh. Say again. <laughs> we have a T-Rex. Oh. Put your, put your head between your knees. <laughs> Dr. Grant, my dear Dr. Thatcher, welcome to Jurassic Park. The British actor and film director Richard Attenborough has sadly passed away at the age of 90. According to his son, the popular actor died at lunchtime on Sunday. Today, of course, is the 28th, I'm sorry, the 25th of August, so this is definitely just two days ago. Actually, I apologize, just yesterday. Uh, Lord Attenborough was a leading British actor who went on to become a very successful director. His career spanned six decades and included such films as The Great Escape, Miracle on 34th Street, and Jurassic Park. As a director, he won two Oscars for Gandhi, the 1982 biographical film about Mohandas Karamachand Gandhi. Attenborough had spent the past few years in a nursing home with his wife. He was the elder brother of popular naturist, naturalist David Attenborough. And, I mean, for those of you who are not familiar, even after hearing what I've just said, you should remember the words, Welcome. Jurassic Park. If that doesn't get it, then you need to, I don't know, get lobotomized or something. I can't help you at that point. 
Um, it is very sad news, um, but a very nice, long, fulfilling life for sure. You don't have to worry about not talking to me. I don't want you to talk to me, do you hear? But you stay away from my family. Just stay away from us! All right, well then, here we go, folks. It is now time for... Three Square! And this week's Three Squared goes just absolute lockstep with uh, with our choice of main feature for this week. Unfortunately, uh, with Nymphomaniac being so saintly and so PG-rated that we were worried that having saucy movies as a Three Squared wouldn't work as well. Yeah, it, we're not buying it either. Yeah, so these these movies that we're picking are going to be the, some of the raciest, the hottest, with the most sex. Uh, one of them, for me, actually happens to be a Spanish film, and I guess that could go with that whole Latin article thing that Tim was just talking about with the nudity, so there's that. All right, I've got three movies here for you. Now, these are just going to be in... Uh, Oh, good lord. In order? <laughs> I'm having a massive brain fart here. Oh, good lord. Chronological? There order? we go. I knew it started with a C. <laughs> Just, uh, chronological order. Yes, these three movies are in chronological order. First one up from 1986 is Nine and a Half Weeks, starring a pre-destroyed face of Mickey Rourke and Kim Basinger. This is, of course, about a... Uh, about a couple who get together and explore the sexual sides of everything in a complete sex-filled relationship that has nothing else going for it. And you'll never guess how long the relationship lasts. I'll leave that up to you to try and discern. The movie did not do so hot in the U.S., but it was a massive international hit and a huge, huge hit on cable TV and direct and on DVD and video. It is. It's got some really interesting sex going on. It's really the the best thing about it is actually just trying to watch how twisted Kim Basinger tries to get over this dude, and it's kind of funny because you can also see just exactly how fucked up boxing treated Mickey Rourke because you would not even recognize that this is Mickey Rourke when you watch this movie, um, but it's it's hot, it's steamy, there's boobs and um, it was definitely very hard for Kim Basinger to get on the other side of this movie. Uh, it took LA Confidential for that to happen. And even that almost didn't happen for her. So check out where it all started and kind of almost where it all went downhill for 
Kim Basinger, nine and a half weeks from 1986. Next up for me from 1991 is an erotic thriller called Zendalee. Now, this series stars Nicolas Cage, Judge Reinhold, and Erica Anderson. Uh, yes, back when Judge Reinhold could actually get billing, equal billing no less with Nicolas Cage, um, also has a lesser known at the time, uh, Marisa Torme. It's got uh, also Joe Pentalon. Pantoliano in there as well, and Steve Buscemi, just for fun. And this is a woman and her husband who are very... uh, They love each other, but uh, let's just say that the spark is gone in the bedroom. And in walks Nicolas Cage, the free-floating spirit painter guy who decides to uh, take advantage of the hot and unused wife in the next room. Uh, I personally recommend the shower, or, or no, I'm sorry, the, the sex on the washing machine during dinner. Uh, that is probably the coolest sex scene in this movie, but there's lots of nudity and lots of fun, and um, things get twisted by the end, because remember, it's a thriller. Movie um, is not really all that good. I remember watching this on Skinamax or something when I was like 15. And uh, and that was pretty much the only reason I saw the N for nudity and was like, I'm for it, because I'm 15, and watched it. So we have that. Last but not least is Sex and Lucia, or if you're from Spain, Lucia y el Sexo. And this is actually one of those weird movies that is basically porn. I mean, it, it really is just... I mean, for all intents and purposes, porn. But holy shit, the people can act. Like, all of them. I mean, it's like literally really good acting, really good writing, awesome cinematography. And was the breakout role on the state side for uh, a little-known, then-little-known Paz Vega. Now, she made her biggest American transition in the movie Spanglish, for those who might have seen that one. Tia Leone and Adam Sandler. But, oh my god, this movie is great. And there is so much sex. And she is so hot. And, yeah. this It's really good. I actually, when I lived in New York uh, with Cirque du Soleil was when I got to see this movie. And it's just amazing. This movie is fantastic. Definitely the best of the three. The first two uh, were very early on and impressionable to me for their sexuality and everything like that, but not really great movies. Zandalee is a little bit better than Nine and a Half Weeks, but Nine and a Half Weeks really isn't all that great. Sex and Lucia, though, I know I've brought it up on the on the show several times before. This one really is a good flick, so I would highly recommend watching this one. And those are my picks. So we've got again from 1986... Nine and a half weeks from 1991, Zandalee, and from 2001, Sex and Lucia. All right, first for me is the 1962 Stanley Kubrick-directed drama comedy entitled Lolita, which is based on the book of the same name written by Vladimir Nabokov. Now, I know I've talked about this movie before. Uh, I, I forget what three squared I brought it up in, but it was, yeah, it was probably about a year or so ago. And this, 
is one of my all-time favorite movies, let alone what probably my favorite Stanley Kubrick movies. And what I loved about it is the little is the young woman Sue Lyon, who played the character of Lolita Hayes. And for those of you who don't know what this movie is about, uh, it's about this uh, professor named Humpert Humpert. In the movie, he was played by James Mason, who comes to live with Shelley Winter's character by the name of Charlotte Hayes. She's renting out a room, so he comes to stay. Well, once he uh, dis- he ends up taking the house or taking the room because he gets a glance at Charlotte Hayes's daughter, portrayed by Sue Lyon. Her name is Lolita Hayes, and that's where you have the classic. Uh, a shot of her laying by the pool with the big sun, or laying, uh, I think, no, she's not by the pool, I don't think, I think she's uh, in grass, just in the backyard, wearing a big sun hat with a big heart, red heart glasses, and sucking on a lollipop, and you have the classic, uh, gosh, I don't know how to explain the music in the background, but it's that, like, la, 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 you know, just very much kind of like bubblegum candy pop of the uh, late 50s, early 60s, early to mid 60s, and the reason why I picked this, there's no, at least in this movie, I'm not talking about the Jeremy Irons movie from the late 90s or even the book itself, there's no sex in the movie. Because they cannot show, not only because they, they weren't able to show sex in the movie because of, uh, of, of laws <laughs> in the 60s and especially how people felt towards movies, and especially this movie was billed on the poster, you'll see that their tagline was, how did they ever make a movie of Lolita? Because the book is pretty damn sexy and pretty racy considering Lolita is supposed to be like 12 years old and Humpert Humpert the professor he's middle aged he's an older guy well okay saucy according to uh, dictionary.com the definition for it is uh, impertinent insolent pert or boldly smart even now because there is no sex shown in this movie, there was a lot of insinuation, and a lot of it had to rely on Sue Lyon, uh, on Lolita, and Humpert Humpert, and how those actors had to portray the character, and they had to show you that they were either playing one another or they were they were they were trapped in their uh, eyes of love. I guess what you could say, you know, like like she was basically she has her she has Humpert Humpert under her thumb to where she can get him to do anything and she knew how and that was by lovemaking but again you can't see that in movies in the 60s well you could but you know it's other movies uh those came a little bit later so they had to rely on dialogue and sex appeal and looks and how how she and how uh and uh and body language and body movement and how one would look at the other and to me not only was that seductive because she had that fantastic way of just kind of like fluffing it off like oh like it came you know it was it was so natural to her that it just kind of it seeped sauciness seeped from her skin you know she had saucy sauce all over the place i guess you could call something else that people produce saucy sauce but you know that's uh for the porno episode that we will never do ever uh, so yeah, so Lolita, I loved it. It to me, it was saucy because they were able to be very provocative and to insinuate provocativeness without actually having a sex scene. And to me, not only is that fantastic filmmaking, also it was a, it was a great screenplay and great performances, but you know, it was just it all just worked great. And every time I watch it, it's like oh my god, 
I love me some Lolita. But let alone, uh, we love her even though we know she's a bitch. Next up here is a movie that I talked about when we were talking about Lawrence Kasdan uh, some episodes ago, I think like four or five episodes ago. And I mentioned that one of the first movies he directed, actually the first movie he directed, because he's a screenwriter, so he decided to take a shot at directing in 1981, was a movie that not only launched his directing career, but it also launched Kathleen Turner's acting career. And this was 1981's Body Heat. Yes, and for those of you who do not know what Body Heat is about, William Hurt is in this is in this movie. His name is Ned. He's a successful attorney or semi-successful attorney, and he ends up falling for Kathleen Turner's character by the name of Maddie, and she lures him, kind of like Lolita, lures him, uh, so that he will do anything that she says. And basically, what she gets him to do is murder her husband. And the reason why she gets him to murder her husband is because she knows that if anything, if anything, if she was going to be found out. Uh, which I'm not saying that she does or does not, because he's an attorney, he can fix it. You know, he he can he can uh, finagle his way out of the whole situation, even though he was the one that killed it. And also, she could even use that, you know, dangle that over and said that he was the one that murdered her husband. And so it was a throwback to the noir films, and it kind of caught a lot of people off guard in 1981. Not only was it because Lawrence Kasdan, who was a writer, he what everybody knows that he wrote was Empire Strikes Back. Nobody thought that, oh, he was going to turn out to be a fantastic director, but he did. He went off to, did, he went off to do uh, The Big Chill and so many other great movies. And he made this noir film based in the early 80s, but it's so damn provocative. Kathleen Turner became the sex icon that helped. I mean, she still, she still, she might not look, she doesn't look anything like she used to in the 80s, but when you still think of sex icons in movies, Kathleen Turner is on that goddamn list, for sure. She is probably top five, for sure, because holy cow, man, you, there is no way that you were not being seduced right alongside William Hurt. Even though you know something is coming, even when after that something has come and went, you still fall for it. And you can under that's how you connect to William Hurt's character when he gets screwed over, is because you fell for it also. You had no idea what she was trying to do. And, you know, what what kinda goes on from there, I guess. And to me, the relationship, they there are there is sex scenes in this movie. They are very they're a very seductive, they're romantic. Well I, well maybe as sexy as seducing somebody for ill will, you know, however that can be romantic, I guess. But just how they shot it, again, it's noir. Uh, it has a noir feel to it. So a lot of shadows and a lot of blues and a lot of darkness, a lot of satin silky sheets. You know, I guess a lot of uh, sex scenes, they don't like to use a lot of cotton because it gets caught on the buttocks and all the other appendages that the going audience would want to see and not be caught on a, on a blanket. Uh, so yeah, that's why I picked Body Heat. To me, that's a sexy movie. Uh, not just because of the sex scenes, but because of Kathleen Turner's saucy, saucy character. Again, she produces excellent saucy sauce. Now, finally, for me, is a French foreign flick that came out in 1986, and it is entitled Betty Blue. And this is directed by Jean-Jacques Benoit. 
And uh, if you're familiar with him, you'd probably recognize uh, a movie he did called um, Diva, which is a fantastic movie that he made. Actually, that was the one that was made in 1981, that he made in 1981. That's also, that could be a saucy movie, though it's more of a thriller. But this movie, holy shit. Again, for those who don't know, Betty Blue is about uh, young love. A young woman falls for this, um, I, I guess he's like a... A repairman, really? He, he's, a, he's a repairman that has these dreams and aspirations of becoming a writer. And uh, The movie's pretty long. I mean, it's, it's over two hours. And so they, they kind of go step by step in the relationship and what attracts them and what pulls them apart. And this is another one that has gratuitous nudity. And uh, another one as in like what Matt was talking about, gratuitous nudity and some a lot of thrusting sex scenes in it so if you like that stuff this is definitely up your alley though the movie does take a pretty traumatizing turn towards the end i won't go there now though again this is another one of the movies that it was shot beautifully it has a great look to it again you can't pull off some of these really romantic seductive scenes without somewhat decent likable characters to where in some weird way and how you how like your mind tricks you into watching movies and really like feeling for a character is that you have to also feel for, you also have to understand why the, the two characters are doing this. Why are they obsessed with each other? Why do they want to do it 25 times in a day and you as an audience member get to sit there and watch it? <laughs> Pretty much. And that's why movies like this succeed. It's because there's something different from like being provocative or porno, you know, watching porno than watching a, a, a saucy movie like Body Heat, like uh, like Lolita, or even like, you know, Betty Blue, or even all the movies that Matt described. So you really need those characters and those relationships to experience these things with them and to understand. And that's how you get into the sauciness, I think at least. So my three again are Lolita from 1962, Body Heat from 1981, and then finally Betty Blue from 1986. And I guess uh, we can now go ahead and get into the last segment, which is, of course, the movie. Alrighty, so the movies this week are Sin City, A Disappointment to Kill For, I'm, I'm sorry, Sin City, A Dame to Kill For, and Nymphomania Volumes 1 and 2. I'm going to go ahead and... Nymphomania? I'm sorry, Nymphomaniac. <laughs> Nymphomania, come on down, experience this Sunday, Nymphomania. <laughs> Gravedigger Nymphomania. Tickets $13. Kids still just five bucks. Uh, <laughs> do they still do those commercials? In, like for the I honestly uh, I don't monster listen to the radio enough stuff? to know, but I assume so. Oh, that's hilarious. Anyway. Five bucks. <laughs> five bucks. Five bucks. Sunday. 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 Gravedigger. <laughs> See the legendary Bigfoot. Uh, okay. Yeah, so I'm going to go ahead and jump out in front of this one here. And say, let's just go ahead and do Sin City first. What do you say? Can we do Sin City first? Yes. All right. Let's do Sin City first. <sighs> I'm beginning to do my Wusa chant right now. Sin City, a name to kill for. 2014 American crime thriller film and sequel to the 2005 film Sin City. This one's co-directed by Robert Rodriguez and Frank Miller. and The script is from Frank Miller, and it's based on Sin City by Frank Miller. 
Um, this one stars the. It stars everybody they could get back from the original uh, flick. Uh, and then introduces a few new people, uh, including a couple of replacements, like Dennis Haber is in for uh, Michael Clark Duncan. And, um, oh, I can't even think of who they got to replace Brittany Murphy. And then, of course, you have people like Joseph Gordon-Levitt, who are jumped in and all that kind of stuff. Josh Brolin's new. They brought Mickey Rourke back, of course, because how are you going to do a Sin City movie without Marv? Um, it's vignetted, uh, more or less like the first one was, but they tried to make a central hub. Um, I remember we were talking last week about Urban Cowboy, and we said that one of the, or at least I said, one of the interesting things was that they centered a lot of the relationships and a lot of the plot points around going to the bar that they were at. And, and like the, the finale of that movie takes place during a mechanical bull competition. Well, they kind of do the same thing here, except as they switch vignettes, they go back to the bar, and that's where the bar... And, and that's kind of like the hub so that they can branch off and bring the stories back and send them off on their way till they need to come back again. But instead of just using it as a smart bridge and then just kind of maybe using some clever cinematography, letting that link the stories together and the people, they, they really just keep trying to make it a narrative experience and it just fails miserably. It's all over the place. Um, most of the acting is completely wooden. Bruce Willis is totally wasted. Um, I don't want to rob Tim too much, but he did basically allude to the fact that he kind of wished that Marv would have just you know like choked him out or whatever and i could i well that was what i i posted that online yes. saying that i wish marv would just jump out of the scream and just break my neck yes there you go and break break yeah i i could not agree more this is a movie that is literally five years too late at best at best it's five years too late at worst it's probably about seven years too late and They, they they just they literally needed to leave well enough alone. I think when they hit the five year mark and realized that it hadn't even really gotten into pre production yet, uh, they should have left it alone. Uh, Frank Miller's stock has definitely plummeted. Um, anybody seen the spirit? Just saying. Um, it's just not as good, uh, you know, and everything that was so good about what happened between 300 and Sin City nine years ago, every, it's already been built upon, and we're past that now. And yet they are, were trying to bring it back, and it just, it failed all over the place. I was so utterly disappointed. I was trepidatious going into this movie because of the time that had elapsed between the two movies but even still utterly disappointed uh, just nowhere near where it needed to be uh just uh visually it's still cool to look at i'll give it that for the most part 
And that's going to bump it from a 1 to a 1.5. Just seriously, seriously did not like this movie. And aside from the visuals, there's just nothing, there's virtually nothing else redeeming about it. So 1.5. And like what gets me with this movie is that it's obvious. It is so obvious that people work their asses off to 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 make to make a movie. I don't. I mean, it might not be the movie that we saw, but they were trying to make a movie, and I gave this movie a one point five as well because of the, uh, the the look of it. And there are some really cool visuals. They did some really cool things, and the movie is just about I think like an hour and fifty minutes or something. Unfortunately, the only thing that really kept my interest was Jason Gordon-Levitt and the look of the movie. And it was cool to see how, like, hair looked different on some people and what they used for color. And then you think, like, oh, well, why did they use that color and not something else? It looked like they tried doing that way too much. And I can't remember if they did that uh, to the same effect in the first Sin City, where they used so much color. It seemed like they were more particular about what had color and what did not have color. Kind of like, well, we're giving this color because it has meaning. And which is another reason why I think that uh, the first Sin City is better is because that was one of those movies that had that it was apparent that a lot of thought went into it because you didn't have all these cut scenes all of these uh quick cuts i should say and all of this like fluff the i mean the second a dame to kill for is just all this fluff you have a ton of like gratuitous boob shots of eva green to where that would make anybody say just come on man it's just like it's the it's not even like She's in a different position. She's in the same position every time. Whenever they go back to the damn bar, they show Nancy dancing some of the worst stripper dances I have ever seen in movies. And if you think about it, Robert Rodriguez has a lot of stripper scenes in his movies. Also in uh, the From Dust Till Dawn TV show, there's a lot of stripper, stripper stuff going on in that movie. Uh, obviously because of you know the casino or the strip club that they go to. But what also gets me is that if you watch, I watch Robert Rodriguez, like the ones that I like, I watch them a lot. And I study the movies, I look at it and I see how he makes his movies with the idea of an independent filmmaker and how he tries to make small movies look bigger than how they are. I mean, that's kind of what he tried to do with Mariachi and that's what he did with like Spy Kids and all that stuff. But then you start noticing the same tricks the same music cues, the same, some of the same stuff that you've seen in all of his movies, and then he just kind of rehashes them again. Now, I'm not saying the entire movie is a whole rehash. Again, like I said, there's a lot of really cool visuals, but there's nothing to back up those visuals. I know I'm kind of skipping around a little bit, but that's kind of how <laughs> this movie felt. Jason Gordon-Levitt, uh, he was really the only guy that I wanted to see more of. He's in the beginning of the movie, and he's in the end of the movie. And how they have all these little vignettes, you know, uh, put thrown together, is that there's really no beginning, a middle, or an end. There's no build-up. There's no come-down. There's no crescendo. Whenever there's an action scene where they're going to go uh, break into uh, Ava's house, it's like all of a sudden they're there, kill a few people, then bam, they're there already. I mean, there's no, like, suspense. There's no, like, taking their time. There's fast cuts. There's no, like, creeping around the house, you know, creeping. You know, what made Sin City so good again is because the time it took to develop 
this creepiness, you know, the, the, this, the sinfulness. You know, you have the Elijah Wood character. You have uh, the yellow face guy. And the whole scene where, uh, where Bruce Willis is hanging by, uh, from the ceiling and suddenly the screen goes dark. And everybody in the, in the audience, in the theater, thought the movie was over. Like, that's how they were going to end the movie. And it lingers for a little while. And you're like, oh, shit, is that how they're going to end the movie? And it comes right back. And, it, and like, he, you hear them... You hear Bruce Willis's character like struggle to, you know, gasping for air, and everybody in the audience felt like that. There's nothing like that in a Dame to Kill for. You know, there, there's nothing to look forward to. There's nothing to anticipate because before you can anticipate anything, it's all just given to you. And when you want, when you think the movie is gonna like come back on, it goes to credits, and so that is just really, really annoying and. I don't. I don't. It, I hate giving this movie a 1.5 because they should. have... I don't know. You would think that people like this, they they should know better. And you kind of wonder, like, what happened behind the scenes? Did something happen with rights? Did something happen with the actors? Did some schedule thing get you know screwed up? Did he have a falling out with uh with uh, with some of the the production people or what happened? Or I don't know. But it's just apparent that this movie. I mean, it's just so sloppy. So so sloppy. And like I said, the redeeming qualities to this movie is the look of it, and at least on my part, it was Jason Gordon-Levitt. And again, you only that's only, what, maybe like 20 minutes. And yeah, so 1.5. Well, I guess that leaves us with Nymphomaniac, Volumes 1 and 2, the Lars von Trier uh, movie that um, is the closing to his depression trilogy here and um yeah it stars uh, charlotte gainsburg stellan skarsgård stacy martin shia labeouf christian slater uma thurman sophie kennedy clark connie nielsen willem dafoe and a few other people that you may or may not have heard of um follows the life exploits of a young woman who is an infomaniac and how she got to where she was, why she is the way she is, and what happens when people who claim to be uh, virgins and not interested in sex try to have sex with her. Um, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and let Tim go first on this one. and um, Nope, you're going then first. Then I will come back in ten minutes and... Uh, no, there's absolutely no. no way I'm going first. Not it's yeah. not happening. There's no yeah. way. Yeah, no, I, I want to have the last word because mine's I, it's a positive one, <laughs> and I would like to. No, you, no, you got the last word on the last one. You got the last word on the last one. I'm getting the last oh, word. Oh, so one. okay, so you're saying so the movie that? Oh come on, we it's always a trade off. Just go. No, you got the last word on Melancholia. Oh, You've got to take okay. the first word on this one. Okay, is your mic muted yet? Our headphones muted. Good. All right. Lars von Trier. Matt said something earlier, like saying, do you think Lars von Trier, Lars von Trier, what the hell? <laughs> Au contraire, I guess is what I was trying to say. But no, uh, can, uh, do you think Lars von Trier can do no wrong? And because I alluded to the fact that, I, I to, or to the to the notion that I, I enjoyed this movie, you know, it's apparent that Matt dislikes this movie. But I can assure you it's more than dislike. 
And it's not because I've uh, I, it's more of like a an appreciation for what he does and like how Matt can watch the Expendables and you know enjoy certain things and kind of put other things to the side. I can kind of do the same thing with his movies. And by his movies, I'm talking about Melancholia and in this movie Nymphomaniac. However, with saying that, Nymphomaniac Volume 1 is pretty different from Nymphomaniac Volume 2. Nymphomaniac has, uh, this Volume 2 has pacing issues, there's some weird character development that doesn't quite make sense, like they're trying to, it just sounds, it seems like they're trying to wrap it up when, it, it makes sense of the subject, when it's kind of apparent that you really am not sure where the movie is heading towards. And again, this is like midway through Volume 2 heading towards the ending, and when it gets to the end, you kind of go along with it, and then once you get to the very end, you realize, well, shit. Lars von Trier's immaturity totally comes out, and it's basically, he. It, it felt like he turned around and gave everybody in the audience the middle finger and said, hey, this is my movie, this is how I'm going to end it. Okay, so what did I like about Nymphomaniac? What are some good things I can say about it? Now, I will say that you really have to watch this movie in full to understand its intentions. It's kind of like what uh, Joe, Charlotte Gainsborough's character, says in the film, and I believe it's in the trailer as well, where it's like, my story is a long story. And if you want to understand who I am and where I'm coming from, you have to listen. You have to let me tell you about my journey. You know, you have to listen to my tale, pretty much. And she continues to... Tell the story about how she became a nymphomaniac, the relationships she, uh, she had, what her influences were, what influenced her to, to take that line of work and lead this light. And it all leads to why, the reason why Stellan Skarsgård's character found Joe, found Charlotte Gainsborough, beaten nearly to death in the middle of an alleyway, or in the middle of an alley in, uh, in London. And so she goes and tells the story. And volume one... It tracks her from her younger adult life, basically from childhood to, uh, I, I don't know, teenager, late teenager, early 20s, I don't know, something like that. And it talks about her, her sexual escapades and why she is taking on these sexual ex escapades. Uh, some of it has to pertain to her, uh, her family upbringing, even though she had a wonderful father, for the most part. Well, actually, no, yeah, she had a really good father. It was not so, not uh, most part on there. Uh, her relationship with the with the first guy she made love with, which it wasn't necessarily love, it was mainly he was raping her, and that was Jerome, played by Shia LaBeouf, and how that, uh, that feeling of non-intimacy, but force, uh, aggression from the male on top of her, and, at the, and, and it, it shows him doing this to her. I mean, again, it's not necessarily rape, because she wanted this to happen, but... To her, she doesn't understand what sex is, what the orgasm is, what compassion is within uh, the confines of the sheets or the bed. And so that right there helps trigger a line of uh, of, of this kind of very... Uh, it, see, again, it's hard to say that it's, it's a sad mentality from my point of view, or, or even a life led of complete of loneliness, really, because... 
she's trying so hard to find to find something to let that passion out of her or passion or orgasm or whatever that she can't do it and she's willing to go as far as to putting up with S&M and putting up with all this crap to where she basically ends up having her uh, having her insides all discombobulated and and hurting and in pain and all that jazz and so pretty much the movie takes you on this journey and shows you why she does it and it goes in depth again like I said what she tells the character about like well if you want to understand where I'm coming from you have to listen to my story it's a long one but it's worth it if you want to understand who I am and I appreciate that the first volume is about an hour and 50 minutes long but to me it's I don't want to say it's entertaining but the, it was shot with with this great fluidity it was very fluid. It was sh- it was kind of like a, the pacing to it was nice and brisk. The movie had some comedic moments in it. It had some great imp- uh, empathy and humor. Uh, also, with that, the sh- movie the movie was shot with sensitivity, with empathy, with humor, and even morbid curiosity. Really, showing you how the various I guess uh, sexual escapades she goes on. And what triggers those escapades and the aftermath of those escapades. And it just shows you how far down the hole she's really kind of, you know, putting herself in or digging herself into. And it's just very fascinating. I don't want to go as far as to say fascinating, but it's very interesting. And the movie is funny and is entertaining. And you can tell that he a lot of thought went into the movie. It's shot wonderfully. There's, I mean, just the look of the movie is really good, especially the whole uh, part in the uh, the whole scene in the train car where she's with a friend of hers, or I guess you could call it a friend of hers, from school, and they take a bet and they say, as long as this train ride, wherever they're going to and wherever they're coming from, we're gonna see how many guys we can bone. And they start, you know, one by one, one by one. And through this, it's paying more attention to young Joe, young Charlotte Hainsborough's character at this time. And even with that, you see how her character develops and how she channels her sexuality and all this stuff. And it's great because you get a, a, a great a, a look at the character to where it would be easy to judge her character if, if the movie was just based on the second part of of the full movie, like volume two, because volume two is when it goes into her more adult life when Charlotte Gainsborough playing herself pretty much and going on from there. And you have to know this backstory. And a lot of people will say, well, do you really need nearly four hours to tell this story? Well, no, but if you wanted to have this effect and have this type of effectiveness, this is how you would do it. You know, I mean, could it have been better? Sure, yeah, he could have done some things better. But it was still, it was good, it was entertaining, and it had, you can watch the trailer, and you watch the trailer and you think that it's, oh, it's going to be this, you know, big pork fest. You know, it's going to be all this sex, and you see so many penises and so many vaginas, but I tell you what, he easily could have showed so much more and done so much more with the pornography or with the nudity, because it's not pornography. The, it's it's more, if you how you look at art, pornography is 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 something well i mean well you watch pornography i mean it's and what was also interesting is that the move this movie unlike our three squared is not saucy the idea of arousal is an afterthought for most of the time i mean there's some some scenes especially uh, you know again you get into the looks she gives the guys and how she approaches them and all this stuff yeah i can totally see how that would turn something on or turn someone on but there's more to the movie 
than just that. I enjoyed the story. I enjoyed how it showed the progression of the character and all that jazz, at the same time incorporating, again, empathy, humor, morbid curiosity, and sensitivity of the, of the subject matter. So yeah, and that brings me to just what I'm going to mention on Nymphomaniac Volume 2, is that <laughs> it leads you somewhat astray. <laughs> oh my god, okay. Should I come back in another ten minutes? Oh god, Matt. Fucking grow up, man. Dude, it, it's been ten minutes and you're on Volume 1? Still? Well, no, see, see, you weren't listening to what I was saying. I was doing both of them, but I was going, I was just ending right then. Oh, okay. My bad. Then my bad. I apologize. And this brings me to my final thoughts on Volume 2. Unlike Volume 1, where it was fluid, it had the humor, and to me, I again, I use the term entertained, or the word entertained and uh, exciting, you know, very loosely. But as much as, as I, I enjoyed the first half, it's the second half where... Not pacing, it kind of has the same pace, but when you start seeing the flaws of the movie, and it really kind of hits the wall the last, like, minute and a half of the movie. And I read a quote from somebody that said, if you're going if to, you, if you enjoy Lars von Trier, if you think you're going to enjoy this movie, and if you watch Volume 1 and you like it, and you can't wait to watch Volume 2 and you start watching Volume 2, stop the movie when her character says, I'm going to bed. And just end the movie right there, and according to this guy, and I believe him, it would definitely make for a better ending than uh, than what it is. I give this movie uh, four stars out of five because I give the, um, or it could be four, yeah, four, 4.25, because I give uh, the uh, second one 3.5 to 3.75, but I give volume one uh, like you know, four and a half, 4.25 stars. So obviously, I enjoyed it. All right. All right, so we're going to go with this one. All right, now I remember there was one really, really, really amazing. It's about five seconds worth of film uh, in the movie uh, Melancholia. And that is where you get to see... uh, uh, Oh, good God. uh, Kirsten Dunst, fully nude, moonbathing by a stream. And, and I really think that Lars von Trier felt he was onto something with that and then decided to make a whole movie where instead of just five seconds, you're going to get bursts of sexiness and, uh, or as we were referring to it, sauciness. I did hear Tim say it's not a saucy movie. Uh, I would have to agree. Technically speaking, it is not, though there is a lot of sex in it. Um, so that you want to keep watching. And, and then he does things like having Shia LaBeouf shift in between some kind of fucked up Irish accent turned into British, turned into no accent, pretending to fix his motorcycle, and then uh, fuck the chick three times vaginally and then five times anally so that they can make some stupid reference to the Fibonacci sequence. And see, and then it ruins it. So even the fun shit you were looking forward to gets ruined. And so I kind of look at the whole movie, both movies, as that, and then it just gets completely ridiculous by volume two. But I'm just going to sum it up by saying this. There is a website. It is called yourmoviesucks.org. 
And there is a very accurate, very in-depth 23-minute video that covers both and properly references Lars, Lars von Trier's work, also pro properly references uh, the, re the rest of the Depression trilogy as a whole, and its point of references to what is going on in Nymphomaniacs Volumes 1 and 2. And I would just say watch that, because that 100% reflects my views of these movies. And aside from Shia LaBeouf's atrocious accent, which is continually laugh-worthy uh, the whole time, I don't really find anything as, as redeeming as Tim does. Uh, so I'm just going to say at that point, two stars, though. I just didn't like it instead of, like, hated it with Melancholia. Two stars, and uh, that's going to be that. Well, that wasn't too bad. See? That wasn't too bad. Yeah. There you go. I'm not going to watch that video, though. It's okay. I didn't listen to your review. That's <laughs> well, fine. Fair <laughs> enough. You know. That's fine. Do you ever listen to what I have to say? The true mark <laughs> of someone who, you know, has absolute faith in their position is when they refuse to listen to the other side. So, I mean, you know, we're good. I, I get it. You know. Yeah. And, and we're both the be... same because I won't listen to you and you won't watch the video. <laughs> oh, no. I mean, there's definitely, like, I mean, come on. Ego. I listen to all your stuff. I listen to your stuff all the time. Even if I hate it. Even if it just makes me want to rip off my skin. Each flesh section. <laughs> well, I was. I told you when we started our pre-record that I was yelling at my stereo in the car for shit you were saying. <laughs> so I listen to your shit all the time, too. It's just, you know, yeah, this one's just not worth it. I, you know, the, the, this particular one isn't worth getting all bent out of shape over. So you were a 4.25, if I heard you correctly, and I was a 2. So there we go. All right, so next week's movies, though, to get us back on track and close us off here, we've got Sharknado 2. I may have to go and watch Sharknado. I don't know if that's necessary, but I might do it just, you should. just for fun. I mean, just Yeah, so you can compare the two. Uh, and then uh, Stage Fright and The Trip to Italy. Uh, our bonus segment for next week is going to be a new segment, I, I guess. It's called Ultimate Letdown, a movie that we both thought should have been fantastic but was a smelly stinker. This will be interesting, to say the least, because I have no idea what we're going to agree on. I have no idea. I've completely forgot to talk about that during the pre-show, um, and I like how you read what I what I what I typed in <laughs> verbatim. <laughs> the movie was a smelly stinker. Yes, it wasn't just a stinker; it was a smelly stinker. So yeah, so that'll be fun. We'll 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 have to play that one a little bit by ear next week. But that's what's going on. So I guess are we down to the spiel, sir? Spiel on. All right. Well, the music you've been listening to, as always, has been brought to us by our music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Cries of Solace. And we, of course, are still the SLS cast, and you can check us out at SLSCast.com. You can send us an email to the show at SLSCast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLSCast. You can follow me, Matt, personally on Twitter at NitTwit123. 
1-800-242-1345. You can also find us on Facebook there. Search the SLS cast. And you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. So, until next week, this is Matt saying that thanks to Lauren Bacall, I get to say this. Looking at yourself in a mirror isn't exactly a study of life. And this is Tim. Talk to you next week. Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. Remember that you can find us at slscast.com, at the SLS Cast for Twitter, also on Facebook, and you can always subscribe on iTunes. Thanks again for listening.